0: And let's go. So i Curiouser and Curiouser. Um, I'm you and I literally have tears in my eyes listening to this. I'm probably the only woman in America who's crying listening to this because this reminds me of, like, my preteen years. I literally remember driving around in a car learning how to drive with this. I mean, my dad didn't know this, but I had this tape in the deck and just thought I was so cool. Um but welcome. Happy 4th of July Eve. This is a really special show we're having for multiple reasons. Um, First of all, uh, on the eve of this great American holiday, we are going to talk about that most American of genres, hardcore. Um, And I say hardcore punk, but we're going to talk about alt and indie, and we've got people from various scenes here. Uh, Ironically, my two sort of guest co-hosts actually came out of the sort of larger DMV scene. And I'll introduce them in a minute. Um, But, uh, and, and, you know, I was thinking like, is that sort of, I mean, here I am going and being a little bit of a musical snob again. But actually, you know, and because I was there when it was happening, I don't really... Sometimes I think maybe we're being too snobby, but I look back and I'm like, no, that was like a seminal, like important, huge scene. So, um, we're going to start there, but there are lots of different scenes across America. Um... You know, I think uh, in a couple of show, a uh, few shows ago, I talked a little bit about the generator parties out in Palm Desert, which kind of gave birth to Caius, and of course, uh, much later, the Queens of the Stone Age. Um, and interestingly, one of our guests uh, is in Tennessee and says there's a Tennessee hardcore scene. Of course, there was Detroit. Uh, there were things happening in Austin and Ohio, all over the country. So we're going to get started. Uh, before we get started. Um, quick little scheduling note uh this upcoming week we have two great shows uh tuesday night we're going to pay homage to Dolly Parton, the queen of all queens, because it is 4th of July and she is a queen. Um, and then on Wednesday, we have a interview with uh, my old boss, actually, the CEO of Intel uh, Corporation, Dr. Craig Barrett. Uh, he was the chairman of the board, COO, and CEO, spent his entire career there, pretty much as long as I've been alive, to talk a little bit about education um, and uh, the state of American education and his uh, very great focus on uh, charter schools. But getting back to our show today, uh, we opened up with listening to a little bit of Scream, which was one of my favorite bands. And I've had the opportunity to see them a few times. Uh, And then we went right into Bad Brains, which is another one of my favorite bands. Um, And uh, Phenomenal, they were one of the bands that I think kind of broke out of D.C. along with Fugazi and had such a huge impact uh um not just I would say on punk on the punk scene, but also kind of in music in general um another one of my favorite bands, marginal man uh I actually uh invited the guitarist friend Kenny in a way to come. He's in Hawaii uh, and he said he was tied up, but he is going to listen to the show later, but that would have been amazing to have him here. They are my absolute favorites but uh, I wanted to introduce and say hello to my two guests. Carson Lystrand and Michael Nestor, both of whom kind of grew up uh, either in or around the D.C. Saints. Carson. I was actually shocked when I saw your biography because you were like, I grew up in Bethesda. So I grew up on Jennifer and Rena Road. So literally like a few blocks away from the, uh, the line between Maryland and D.C. Uh, my dad worked in Bethesda. Many of my friends in the neighborhood went to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. Um. So I want to welcome you to the show and say hello.
1: Hey. Uh, Yeah, super cool to be here. And uh, I'm super excited to hear uh, everyone's uh, stories from over the years and sort of see how this has all played out um, across the years and and across different uh, places outside of D.C.
0: Where'd you go to high school in D.C.?
1: Uh, I went to Whitman. So right down the street from B.C.C.
0: Yep. So there were all of these, the public school system was a big uh, kind of like feeder into this. I often think about, you know, I've, um, all of us kind of, whether, you know, these guys from, uh, I'm trying to think of all the bands like Soulside and King Face, you know, we all went, Wilson was the, my district high school, which was in walking district, uh, sorry, walking distance. And Deal was sort of the elementary school and Mer- merch was our elementary school. And then Deal was the middle school and Wilson was the high school that everybody went to. I ended up after much. Uh, actually, my parents put me into private school and then I got yanked out and put into public school. It was a big running battle between my parents. My dad wanted me in private school, like all girls Catholic school. My mom was very much into, like, you know, we were in a city and, you know, we should be, like, you know, in and of the city. So she should be going to public school. So I ended up graduating from a school called School Without Walls that was in the heart of uh, George Washington University, which also held, I think it was the Listner or the List Center. I forget what it was called anybody remembers, remind me, but they held concerts. concert. I think I saw the Smiths there uh, way back in the eighties, uh, uh, late eighties, I believe. Um, yeah. Late eighties, mid eighties, 80s, probably mid eighties. Um, so, um, so that high school was, high schools were sort of a feeder. And I do remember, I don't know if you remember this Carson, but Fort Reno was literally walking distance and Fort Reno was where we would have these summer concert series. So all summer there would be free bands that would play I think I saw Fugazi's first or second show, Um, and uh, ironically, um, I did not like them. Um, And of course, they were, you know, along with Bad Brains, uh, two of the kind of made it out of that DC bubble and uh, took on more of a prominent role, uh, and I think also very representative of DC. Second guest is Michael Nestor. Michael, welcome. You're from Baltimore sort of right. yeah
2: yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> the other city in the DMZ. that's right <laughs> that's right I'm, I'm baltimore represent but no really cool this is a great show and i think that scream record might have been recorded at inner ear which is a place i spent a lot of time at when i was in my early 20s because that studio was the studio right that's where all these fans went and from, being in Baltimore bands and being in the scene up here, it was like a big deal if you went down to record Inner Ear. So um, I know the studios closed now, but um, it was really cool. I remember I think like 2014 or something like that. I think it was that um, Dave Grohl did a I think a miniseries. I, I didn't catch all of it, but I know he did one episode on Inner in Ear. So I mean, it it really had a huge impact on on the scene but yeah Baltimore is a great place to be it was gritty it was dirty um you know and still is still is is. and and that lived on on the music you know And, and I was a little bit later um probably um definitely than than you in the in the scene but I got to catch the tail end of of all of it which was really cool because it was like everything came to fruition all of the Bands went out there. They were starting to get really good followings. People were really interested in, in music and um, in, in our region in general. And, you know, and I, I, I sort of on the in the hardcore side of things, I kind of fell more. I started out sort of in the hardcore slash metal side of things because of, of the bands in Baltimore. So, like, I remember things like, well, there was a sort of a metal movement. So you had like Crack the Sky and so it's let me let me take a step back, Michael,
0: and ask you, yeah. like you, what years were this? Just to put this into context, when I talk about the scene that I grew up in, I'm yeah. talking about the mid '80s to the early '90s. Which, again, as I said in the beginning, you know, I was just living my life being like a preteen, and I used to say sneaking out to these shows, but it wasn't sneaking out because they were all ages, um, and that was something that was criminal with the DC scene that they made the shows so that kids like 13 years, 12 year old, whoever that you know that couldn't drink and get into a club could go and i never thought about this but um i used to sneak out to this thing so that was sort of the first wave um and as i said i was living my so i didn't think anything of it but when you go back and look at the history you're like oh my god that was like historical that's where Mm -hmm. all of these bands came out of right dag nasty minor threat uh rites of spring a beef eater i mean you could just go on and on that was the first wave um so Mid 80s to early 90s. What is the time period that you're talking about?
3: So I'm I'm the second wave, which is early 90s all the way up to the millennium. So. OK. Um, so probably. Well, what is
0: millennial to you? What is that? Say
2: probably
3: not. So probably I'd say probably ninety ninety one through 2001, 2002.
2: OK. So before that you
0: go that on, Carson, what are you? What that what are the dates that you were around D.C.?
1: So I grew up in DC, I was born in 95, but playing music there um, and being involved was really like a 2014 to... Oh, wow. Yeah, like, or maybe a little before, I mean, going to shows and stuff, but before we really started getting out there and playing it was maybe 2013, 2014. Um, and then I was back and forth between there and Nashville for a while. Um, so kind of till, I think probably the last show I played with my band in D.C. was 2017 or 18. Oh,
0: wow. So we have like a whole spectrum here. And I want to get into that. And I want to talk to you about Nashville, because I did know that you had mentioned there was a hardcore scene in Nashville, which is, of course, not what we think of Nashville. But that is really heartening to know. Um, but Michael, go ahead just to round off. Uh, sort of your no, that's right. That's a work. great
3: I mean, that's a great coverage. I mean, um,
0: yeah. So I, I was in the second
3: sort of second wave but I knew of the early, so, you know, and, and so hardcore really morphed more into emo and that kind of phase. Um, and that's kind of where I lived and where a lot of my friends and my bands were and, and all of that. But but I knew of, it, like, Baltimore bands like um, Reptile House, Null Set, um, trying to think of some other ones that were um, there, uh, like The Accused. Um, that was also another big one from Baltimore. Um, so those, those bands were, and they did link up with the DC scene quite a bit. Lungfish was another one that was a big one. Those were crossover between DC and Baltimore scenes. And so I knew of them and they were quite a, quite an influence. And I think, I think I was more in the vein of sort of Jawbox, and tsunami and Ida and simple machines and sort of the later Discord type bands um, like Farrakhet and all of that. That was the second wave. Um, those a lot a lot of those folks were my contemporaries, um, and so so that's really kind of what I mean. Uh, mommy heads. These are all sort of the second wave um, of of sort of the DC. Um, so in Baltimore, the thing about being in Baltimore was. That going down and playing in DC in the early to mid nineties, um, and I was still a teenager, so you know I had to, I had the same thing where I was like sort of sneaking in and out and around. But but the Baltimore had only a couple venues, and those were the venues. So when you went down to DC to play, that was like a big deal. It was it, a you big know, deal. Yeah. It was like going into a, it was like going from you know anywhere where we're at now to New York City or something. It was like it was only like thirty miles away but it felt like a whole different thing. And so I just remember, and, and the, the energy of the music in that area was just a lot more sort of, um, there was a lot more cross-pollination between like hardcore bands and punk bands, hardcore bands and reggae and ska. In Baltimore, it was, there was some of that, but it was very, very siloed off. Um, so that was one of the coolest things, I think, that I got to see young, and it really influenced me when I, you know, was on, when I was in my bands and when I went on tour and all of that, it really influenced me to seek out a lot of musicians and music that are were very different from what I was doing. So um, I loved it there. I mean, I tried to get down there as much as I possibly could. Um, yeah. So but, that actually,
0: yeah. you know, that reminds me that it actually, you know, the DC scene we say, and I think it's very important for anybody that's in the room that's familiar with all of this. You know, when you say, you know, hardcore and punk, you're thinking that it's people with spikes in their hair, wearing leather jackets and spikes in their coat. And yeah, there were some of those. And there were all these little mini scenes, right? I grew up in a neighborhood where I will tell you that most of the kids that were there all probably are like, I don't know, lawyers, doctors, I don't know what they are. But they were all playing these bands. Uh, and um, I was a little bit younger. These were the older brothers of my friends. So you know, um, Soulside, and Kingface, and Fugazi, and Rites of Spring, and all these guys were a little bit older. So I would run into them, you know, maybe as a preteen and teenager. It's like when I was doing a job, and like I worked with Brandon Canty at some deli, and the older brothers of my friends were playing in these bands. And that's how I really sort of got into it. And it wasn't, you know, it. there certainly were skinheads, there was uh, a lot of um, slam, there were slam dancing, you would Actually, I remember being, like, stuck up on the side of, like, DC Space and 930 Club so that I wouldn't get hit. Because, I mean, I was basically a little kid. I was my parents. I would have been horrified. I mean, even though there was really, it was just about as innocent as you could possibly, like, get. Uh, I would still be horrified if I saw the scene being like, why are you going down to downtown to these clubs? But um, it was just about, you know, and the whole street that brings another point up, which is about the whole straight edge aspect of it. Right. Which is also something that was really unusual. It was, um, you know, drinking wasn't a big part of my high school experience. And clearly um, it wasn't something that was uh, really supported or, you know, kind of glorified in this punk rock scene. So the shows were for kids of all ages. It was really about kind of, there was a lot of social justice and activism involved. There were always shows that were being put on for something like A Rock Against Apartheid. I remember it was a big one. Uh, I think Scream probably played. Beef Eater, uh there was a whole there was a huge Hare Krishna movement, right? So uh, the members of Beefeater were Hare Krishnas, um, and that interestingly grew into sort of the New York when you think about the crow mags actually invited my best friend who used to date Harley Flanagan of the crow mags. Uh, I ha- didn't, she's also in Hawaii iron ironically, but, um, she, I think, used to date Brian Baker from, I think he was in Minor Threat, and I think now he's in Faith. You know, we grew up together from the age of five. Um, but like the Cro Mags and all, there was a, sort of this Krishna consciousness. So that was a scene with like vegetarian. So there was this political stuff that was happening. There was social activism. It was all ages. So there were little kids that showed uh, no drinking. And then there were also parties. And then you also did have sort of hardcore punks, right? There was a place. Uh, a Roy Rogers in Georgetown um, and the extra steps where all of these guys would hang out. And I also remember like being a preteen and a teen going and it was a really big deal for me, you know, like on a Saturday to get on the bus and go down there and hang out. Um and the two big clubs in those days um were DC Space, which I hear is a Starbucks today. I did not have the heart to go by and look at it when I was living in DC the last few years. Um, and then the nine thirty club, which was on nine thirty F Street. Yeah. And as we discussed, had a giant pole in the middle of the frickin' stage. So you'd never see anything. And I've seen Marginal Man and I think Bad Brain's there, and when I say seen, put that in quotes because the giant pole blocked my view. And then you had like Back Alley uh, uh, Cafe, you had Black Cat. Um, But Carson, let me take a step back. And I would love to hear, you know, you were talking about your sort of kind of much more recent, although your sort of experience in the scene has been like in the last decade or so. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you think of these guys, like these old bands? Uh, are they things that, are they, are they, is it music? Is it a scene that influences you? Is there, I'm sure there's a pedigree there still, um, but I would love to hear a little bit about your experience and uh, what the hardcore scene in DC is like today.
1: Yeah, I mean, so much of uh it's, I mean, it's crazy. You're like, I saw Fugazi's first show, like all of this, you know, all these bands that you talked about, like they were pretty much totally defunct, even by when I was a young teenager. So all this stuff I learned from,
4: you know, the internet
1: and kind of got there by way of listening to other bands and finding out about their influences and their history and stuff. And um, so all of it like is, is this super magical time that I'll never touch um so it's 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 so cool to hear that um you know you were right there in the thick of it um it's like that's like dream like if I could travel back in time that would like Fugazi's first show sounds like a good um good place to jump off from but yeah like there was so much I mean there's just so much written about the there's all this music and um there's so much to listen to, it's so much to discover, but there's so much written about the about the mentality and about the culture and about sort of um, the, the broader, like, community purpose of this beyond just being art for art's sake. Like, it really had this tangible, um, on-the-ground purpose. And that, to me, just when I was young, getting into music, and it felt like that, like, going to... Some of the first shows I ever went to you you feel like you're part of a community all of a sudden, and i 'm like a thirteen fourteen year old starting to get weirded out by the world, and all of a sudden there's a there's a community and this this sense of belonging and then to kind of dig deeper into all of it and find out that was like sort of the point um, that you know that there's this open free uh liberated space for people. Um, so it totally has made a huge impact on me of just like, what are we actually, what am I actually doing music for? What's the point of all of this? And that the DC scene and like Fugazi, especially just like, were like, there is a tangible point to all of this There's a purpose. There's a goal of uniting people and giving people a space to be themselves and a space to kind of let it all out. Um, so that's always been a thing and, and still now like having now played so many different kinds of music and lived in different places and stuff it that's, that's always sort of at the forefront is like, is this for people is this, you know, going to create a space, whether that's totally on the internet, or hopefully in person, um, that people can feel free and can feel like they get to be themselves
0: and that's such it's so interesting to hear that that legacy still remains um because you know i mean i was in dc the last few years but i was working in government and uh really did not get time out to go see shows except literally i think i mentioned this in uh, a show that we did with michael um that uh literally the day that i was moving out uh foo fighters came but um they had announced two shows at the new Nine Thirty club uh because the COVID restrictions had been lifted for, I guess, a month or so. And that was just the window I was using to move. Um, And so I was like, oh, man. Uh, But uh, of course, they sold out in minutes. But that's really interesting, that sort of the activism and the political piece, because that was, I'll be honest, I was not old enough um, and probably interested enough to be thinking about those things. I mean, of course, you would go to the March Against Apartheid, but literally too young. I mean, it was more of just kind of being involved in something that was a bigger movement. Uh, There were marches on the Capitol um, and you would go to shows and they would stop the shows. If there was somebody getting like beaten up in the front or you felt like you were getting bullied, people that were in these bands would literally stop the show and be like, Hey, and call people out. And that kind of stuff that was happening, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't still kind of a scene. And Michael and I were talking about this a few days ago where I remember when I went away to college and I want to give a shout out and bring him up because my, uh, I don't know how you say that he's my, across the hall mate, Ed the Bear is in the room. Ed is a wonderful and prolific author. Ed and I, uh, you know, Ed used to live across the hall from me at Columbia University. And Ed and I went down to CBGB. There's a whole nother scene in New York. We went down to CBGBs to see one of my favorite bands, uh, Corrosion of Conformity. And uh, I'd love to have him up here to actually share a little bit about that. Ah, there you are. I'm going to take the next caller. Ed. So the way that you unmute is there's a little microphone down at the bottom, you just click on that to unmute. Hello! Am I really
4: here? Oh my god!
0: Oh my god! <laughs>
4: Sarayu, how are you?
0: I'm so good! I cannot believe I have not talked to you since, like, college, dude. How are you? Oh
4: my gosh! I'm, uh, I'm old! <laughs> um. Oh my gosh, but, you know, um, in, in, the rec- in the last decade or so, I've been digitizing, like, all my old hardcore records and all the live tapes I did in college, and uh, it just really brought me back into, like, uh, you know, being a teenager again, and just, like, you know, I'm a man of my 50s, and, like, my playlist is curated by this teenager I used to be. It's really weird.
0: I just um, I just want to say that I'm a genius and I went to school. I'm a lot younger than Ed. I went to school really early. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. I'm 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 ancient. I'm ancient. But sorry, uh, is like eternally young, you know. Um, but uh, you know, I have very sharp memories from that uh, from that show. Actually, yeah. I, it was you know one of the hardcore uh, matinees at CB's, um, and I showed you the flyer uh, that uh, of the very show we went to. Uh, one of the opening bands was uh, the Icemen, which I distinctly remember. I was like, you know, wow, these guys are kind of like, you know, generic, kind of hardcore. But, hey, you know, it's it's hardcore matinee, so, you know, it, anything goes, whatever. Um, and I remember Corrosion, for them, it was like one of their uh, changing formats. Because while Reed Mullen and uh, Woody Weatherman were still in the band... They had a, a new singer. Um, yep. I can't remember if Pepper Keenan was on guitar with All them right. you know, or not. Oh but it was God. a it was a five piece. But uh, you know, I really, really wanted to see that original trio—the one that did Animosity. With uh, yep. you know, uh, you know, um, what's the name? Uh, who, who's the bassist singer? There uh, was Woody- Woody Weatherman, Woody um, Reed Mullen, and Reed Mullen, God. Anyone listening here is like thinking I have no credibility whatsoever. No, but, uh, first of
2: all, I'm Mike,
4: Mike, Mike. Mike. Mike was a singer. Mike was a singer and playing bass. But like animosity, I thought was just fantastic. You know, it was like a crossover, sort of like when when bands were doing the crossover from hardcore to metal. But like they retained like the sharp lyrics, with the political commentary, you know, I loved it, you know, uh, it's just, because yeah, I had moved in, in uh, high school from New Jersey to the middle of nowhere, in Pennsylvania, in this, like, mad racist town, you know, I was so angry, and animosity just really, really helped me <laughs> get through it. <laughs> so, I
0: want to give a shout out, first of all, Ed,
2: Uh we
0: lived across the hall from a Yeah. Yeah. And is a encyclopedia of music knowledge. And um, there was a huge DC contingent that actually moved up to Columbia and Barnard and were going to school there. So I would every time I would go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, we would all go and see like a speaking of Back Range Show or a Marginal Man show or something. Um and they would play shows around that time because everybody was coming back. Um but I remember, you know, in New York there was a whole other kind of uh vintage of music, obviously, with and of course CBGB's was there, yep. so you were, you and um, Howie were one of, two of my friends that would actually make that <laughs> trip downtown with me, and I remember <laughs> we went to go see Corrosion of Conformity, I remember you were holding up your recorder the entire time, and then you jumped <laughs> up and ripped off the set list, which I have <laughs>
2: somewhere, because that's like...
0: I put it somewhere in the rafters of my mother's house
2: um, in D.C. because I didn't want her to throw it out when I wasn't there. So <laughs> I'm sure it's somewhere. But I remember you ju- I was
4: like, I need that set list. And you jumped up and you grabbed it off the speaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, a perilous move for sure. Because, like, you know, you had all these kids slam dancing and stuff. But I want to
0: say that Ed is a prolific... Writer Ed Lin. You should check him out. L I N is his last name, so please go check out his books. And uh, also, very uh, fun, amusing, and interesting to follow on all social media. But uh, <laughs> Ed, hang out and stay up here, be a part of the conversation. Um, I don't know if you actually, I know you, you were digitizing this stuff and you might have a little piece of the show to play, but I wanted to pull Carson and Michael into this conversation and would love to hear. You know, we talk about different scenes, and I can only speak about that D.C. speak scene. I have a lot of knowledge about some of the other scenes, but Carson, coming from D.C., coming from the pedigree of, like, having that sort of mid-80s, you know, to mid-sort of 90s kind of uh, legacy that you come from, and then doing your own thing uh, in the hardcore scene in D.C., you then moved to Tennessee. Tell us a little bit about your musical journey, what kind of music you play, and tell us about the scene in Tennessee. What is it like now? Are there kind of throwbacks to D.C.? And uh, give us a little bit, get, report Report back, please.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there really is. I mean, and it was, it's it's funny, because when we were playing in D.C., you know, I mean, punk As like a sonic form of, you know, fast drums and fast guitars and shouted vocals, like playing around when I was playing with a band in DC, like we would play a lot of shows at different spots there. And the scene, it didn't sonically sound like that, but the, the ethos and the, the mentality of like doing what feels right, doing what, Uh, You know, being aware of the politics of what you're doing um, and not being afraid to be yourself was still such a huge prevailing sentiment there. And so a lot of the bands, I mean, we played band I played with in D.C., played pretty, um, you know, psychedelic music. And we were these kids from Bethesda who would kind of schlep our way. Into downtown somewhere. And,
0: and let me just jump in for a second, Carson, and say one other thing. The other thing which has been brought up by Michael and you is also, and I started to touch on it, is when we say hardcore and people think about like slam dancing and skinheads, and there was some of that, but it was actually all different kinds of music that fell under that umbrella. Right. We talked about emo. Like some people said Rites of Spring kind of started that. I mean, they deny it. They're like, no, we had nothing to do with that. But the truth is that um, a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these bands actually had different kind of they're not kind of like what you would think of as sort of traditional sort of, uh, you know, hardcore kind of band so they and you know of course Bad Brains kind of mix and they were Rastafarians and there was Scott and Reggae that mixed it up so you had actually all of these different kind of musical genres and influences so I wanted to hear um, you know I wanted to I wanted to just point that out and then before you go on so go ahead Carson
1: yeah so I mean in, at least in D.C. and I'll, I'll talk about I can talk about Nashville too but at least in D.C. like what it felt like was you know this this idea of making music for your community for the immediate community, which was, you know, as as far as I can tell, that was, that was a big part of the, of the discord uh, and the Fugazi mentality of just like, we have a city right here that we're going to make music for. And so the punk in DC now is, is hip hop artists, you know, and it's, and it's electronic artists. Like we shared stages and rooms with um, these guys, Sir EU plays in is still in DC. And he is just, he's a true original and he's, and he's absolutely like devoted to what he does. Um, guy named Dreamcast, who's really starting to make a name for himself, which is really exciting. Um, uh, Nappy Napa, just these, these hip hop artists, foots and Coles, like um, who were playing music that, that, you know, that was of the times it was of, of, of 2014, 2015, you know, like it, it recognized all the, Music and that, that was in DC, yeah. And so that was in DC. So that was like what I feel like the the lineage of if there is like a legacy that's been left um, from Fugazi and those guys, it's by it's it's in those guys. It's in Sir EU now, and in like I don't think it's still there. But the Uptown Art House was a was a DIY space. Um, right down the street from the uptown movie theater and uh on it Connecticut was Connecticut
0: Avenue that's on yeah, Connecticut Yeah it was right? um yeah.
1: you might even remember the it was some restaurant some like Irish pub um that got they just gutted the whole thing in it, and the whole thing was just filled with graffiti and and people did performance art people had you know sort of standard shows bands in the corner no stage um so it was still felt super alive it was just really cool because instead of it it being uh you know, instead of it sounding sonically like Minor Threat or or Bad Brains, it was you know it was guys with crazy electronic setups and and rappers and people doing some really avant garde stuff. So it sort of felt like that was the the legacy that it left was was maybe not so much of a, a musical legacy, but just of like a mindset legacy.
0: Uh, This brings this back to, there was also, Go Go Music was huge when I was coming up, And Trouble Funk was one of those bands. They did a show with Minor Threat. I actually have a t-shirt. I wasn't there. I did actually buy it like recently, but um, it's a Trouble Funk and uh, Minor Threat played together. And and it's funny because I was just living in DC the last few years and uh, the um, concierge in my building all of a sudden started talking about go-go music. And I was like, I grew up with that stuff here. And she was Mm -hmm. like, I love go-go music. And Trouble Funk, you know, it was a combination of American R&B and funk. um, And it was very much a DC thing. And they sometimes really kind of came together with the hardcore kind of punk. That was also... Some of that punk ethos of like, you know, bleeding over into kind of other genres and making music with other folks. So I think that is actually very much sort of in the legacy of DC. And of course, when you look at Bad Brains, I mean, it was just, I mean, visually such a stunning, unusual thing. you are got to remember, this was like the 80s and things were quite segregated in those days. And just for a little bit of history, um, you know, where I lived in Northwest DC, um, I lived in a extremely white neighborhood. Um, which is considered one of the, you know, Northwest DC nice neighborhood, really good school district. But the reason why people were able to buy houses is because there was a white flight in those days, right? In the seventies and the eighties, white people were leaving and going to the suburbs. So young families could kind of show up and buy like big old houses, you know, in these nice neighborhoods and good school for cheap. Um, And so, this is also the legacy of that. The children of those people are the people that started these bands. Um, and so it was still quite segregated um, in the sense that, you know, you would go to schools and, um, you know, Black people would sit together. I mean, not very much different from today, I guess, in this country, but um, white people would sit together. But when the, when it came to sort of music, I mean, Bat Brains visually was stunning, extraordinary, right? The, these guys with that were Rastafarian with dreadlocks that were playing this very heavy, fast music. We started out with Eye Against Eye to a room full of white skinheads, white punks, sometimes very young, uh, mixed crowds. So um, anyway, just wanted to throw that in there, but go ahead, Carson.
1: Yeah, and so like that was the experience there, but it was this feeling of it's it's still super alive. And then, like moving to Nashville, I've played in a lot of different, there's a lot of music in Nashville for one, like, I mean, like uh, punk, heavy music um, and beyond, like it gets a reputation as a, as a country spot, um, which there's a ton of, but there's every kind of music here. um, And it, it ranges. And, you know, from, from sort of nationally globally recognized artists in every genre to super underground and, and local scenes. And so, but it was really cool when I moved here i I think I went to like the second show ever at a DIY venue that opened here um, called Dark Matter, which now i mean they've i mean and that was in 2015 sixteen maybe and they've moved locations you know a couple times now and now they have a they have a total like full blown venue now and bands underground bands come from all over and play there and there's a ton of local shows there and in Nashville unlike DC when I grew up which was such a blessing that shows were all ages everything here is is 21 or 18 and up so oh wow you know and, and and I mean every and there's so many music venues and there's so many shows that happen here but so many of them are 18 or 21 and up and when I got here I was old enough to go so it was it was whatever but I just remember thinking there's all these kids here who are not getting in or who are sneaking in I think is really the case a lot of the time but um but this Dark Matter these this crew that put that venue together um it was it's an all-ages venue it's the only one I know of in town still it's the only place that really hosts all-ages shows and I'll go there and see see a local band play and they'll just be 15 year olds moshing and just having the time of their lives and it's i'm i'm just like so grateful that 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 those those guys got that space together and and all the people who run it are in bands that tour um the the i think the the original founder um catherine is uh she sings in a great hardcore band called third face who i see every time they play and now they're on tour with touche amore and stuff and like really making it happen. But yeah, there's a feeling. And I, 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 some of them people, I only know a few of them closely uh, at all, but, and whether or not it's directly like, they're like, we got to do it. Like how they did it in DC in the eighties. It totally feels like that. It's just this, the community comes first, protecting the space comes first, keeping everything all ages accessible comes first politics and living conditions and helping paying back the community. Like all of that comes first with the underground scene here, which um, has just been so cool to see it grow and, and uh, get to see shows. And, and I've played it, I've played at some of these venues and, and playing some bands that have, that have made it out there at times. So it's um, yeah. I don't know if it's, if it's direct, if it's a direct influence, but the, I mean, there's no way that people here don't look at that as some kind of model of how to construct a healthy scene
0: and you know i wonder how much are the shows do shows cost to go to because when i was going to these shows they were like eight dollars five dollars ten you'd be like fifteen dollars that's too much of course now i mean you know you pay like hundred dollars to see like um, whatever Foo fighters are but um to go see those shows go see dave dave girl on scream it was like five dollars what are the prices uh,
1: honestly i would say that they'd gone up but the early dark matter shows that I went to were, were five bucks. I just saw a great local band, uh, shell of a shell play. It was 10 bucks. And that was with two touring bands there. So I don't think the venue's taking a lot of that money. I think a lot of it goes to the artists and making sure that they're, um, making sure that they're paid and taken care of. So yeah, it's, it's, it's still super cheap. I mean, yeah, the early shows were five or seven bucks. Now they've got a storefront and they've, they've got a bar so they may maybe that was the extra 3 bucks but i i rarely i don't know if i've seen anyone play at dark matter for for more than $15
0: and this was i will just say this was by design these 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 ticket prices were kept low so that all ages could afford it i don't ever remember seeing people drink. I'm sure there was drinking going on. It was also, since I was sort of the kid's sister, I was kind of like, you know, they were like, get out of your squirt. But, you know, we would sneak in and go stand at the back of the wall. And as I said, I when I got older and I went away to college, um, I would come back and go to these shows. Um, and I remember people smoking cigarettes, but I very rarely saw people drinking or drunk or at the bar getting a drink, but you just, you wouldn't see that at space. I don't remember. I don't know if nine nine thirty Club, I don't think they served alcohol, but it was just never a part of it. And, 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 you know, as you mentioned, sort of the activism, that sort of legacy sort of looms, um, large, but it's interesting to hear that, um, some of that is still kind of, uh, something that you see in the scenes of, of, uh, uh, of other places. And I wonder if people have had experience with any other scenes outside of sort of DC. I mean, Ed, I know that when we were together in New York city, we used to go see the shows. I knew that you used to go see a ton of shows if I'm not mistaken. And I know that you are, um, somebody that is a bit of a connoisseur when it comes to music. So I'm wondering during those days, um, if you got out and about in New York, and I wonder if anybody else in the audience or on stage has any experience with other kind of, and again, we say generally hardcore, but it really includes so much, alt, indie, emo, um, and what those scenes were like. Would love to hear from folks.
4: Well, I, I don't know if I were, was a, a connoisseur, but, um, <laughs> but you know, another uh, musical movement that was happening in New York was sort of like the, the so-called scum rock or noise rock, like White Zombie was really gearing up.
2: Oh, yeah.
4: Uh, and uh, what else was there? There was like Barbatomagos, which was this crazy band that had like two saxophones that were mic'd up and this uh guitar turned up to full distortion it was like pure noise <laughs> but uh oh and also live skull was kind of changing too because they got uh thalia zadik as a singer so um there there were so many things happening i, I mean i i really did try to go to as many shows as i could and record, you really
0: did um, i remember that
4: yeah, I, I mean, I feel I was lucky enough to see government issue once, and it was like already after the whole scene had slagged them off for like slowing down. But um, in, in my opinion, their their last two albums are the best, like uh, you and uh, forever. I I just think they're great.
0: You're you're still in New York, right?
4: I still am. I, I'm there right. I'm on the sidewalk right now, man. I can
0: I can hear that. Um, yeah, so, I'm at a
4: games cafe. Like my my kid loves playing board games, so my <laughs> wife and son are playing it right now while I'm out here. <laughs>
0: on the phone. Um, on the phone. Well, oh, well, it's so funny because as you know, CB's doesn't exist. I think it's a John Barta Morrow's store now. Um, yes. And I had gone to see I. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think I went to see Ice T and Body Count there, in the like mid '90s. You remember his metal band? Body
4: yes, Count? yes, absolutely.
0: So um I, I think they were playing there, and I think I went to go see there um, uh, them. But I do, I have to throw this story in about CBGBs because it is so iconic. I got to meet Hilly Crystal, who was the wow. owner, legendary owner of CB, and I met him in the weirdest way because I went down to CB's. Um, You know, I used to be a model, and I went down there for a go-see. And I went down there with my boyfriend at the time, you know, Homer. We went down, and he was waiting for me outside. And I was waiting for my turn to go see the casting people. And Hilly was sitting there on a chair. And uh, I realized he was the owner. We got into a conversation. I told him I was from DC and from the hardcore scene. And we got into this amazing conversation. And he he was, like, so full of, like, joy of, you know he was like oh wow yeah he said you had some of them come up at your play and the entire time he had a fly sitting on his face and he <laughs> never bothered to swat away and i was like, oh. this is like an iconic moment in music history and so punk rock he never once waved it away it was just sitting on his face the entire like seven-minute
4: conversation we had till I got called for the go-see, so there you go. Wow. Wow. You know, I interviewed him. I wrote uh, wrote a pretty short feature for this Japanese magazine about CBs in like, 93, and uh, it was, I think it was like a few hours before Velocity Girl, another DC band, was going to play there. Um, And the one thing he said that really stuck with me is that, you know, new bands come and go all the time you just have to find a way to say i love you in a new way is that
2: what he said <laughs> yeah
4: yeah <laughs> he, he also a said way. he had to throw out um sid vicious a couple of times
0: i i am not surprised but that really i mean that's so bad that they could not keep that open <laughs>
4: You know, I, can I throw this out there? I just want to say it's so interesting how there are so many hardcore punk documentaries right now. It's like I, <laughs> I, I felt like I was watching every single one and I can't keep up. Really? Yeah, I mean, there was American Hardcore, which seemed to really yeah. kick things off, you know, I guess sort of based on the book. Um, but then there was one particular DC, like every scene had to say, oh, yeah, well, we got our own documentary here. <laughs>
0: I know there were, I've seen a couple of them. I'm not quite sure what they all kind of like, you know, um, lead together. You know, one of the things about today, Ed, I feel like when we were growing up, there was a limited set of things you could do and see. And in yeah. some ways that was such a blessing because now it's like we were talking about podcasts and things like there's just a glut of like content. And it's almost overwhelming. Everybody is a content producer, you know, everybody's everything. And so, so much choice that it becomes very difficult to, it, it grabs you. And that's why things like TikTok, I think are killing it because it's short. Everybody can get in and do something. Uh, there is, I don't feel like there's any tremendous filter, you know, for quality or content or anything, but it's just, I feel like in some ways, we were very lucky to have grown up where things were kind of bubbling up, I think, organically. But there also wasn't that much, like, I want to say, choice. It's just that it wasn't, it wasn't as prevalent. Everything wasn't everybody, and everybody wasn't everything as it is today.
4: Yes, yes. I mean, there it, and and all the kids who were in a hardcore in the '80s have done pretty interesting things with their lives. I kind of feel like no one. No one's like, uh, sitting back, uh, in the cubicle or whatever. Um, so funny, you know, uh, I've, I've been a financial journalist now for almost 30 years now (laughs) as the day job. Um, and while I was at, (laughs) while I was at Forbes, um, I, you know, I, I made, I, because I have so many records and stuff, I, I, I use part of the office as like my storage area. And, uh, (laughs) I was, I was moving around a couple of singles. As you should. As I should, you know, it's my right. Uh, so I was moving a couple of singles around, and this other editor said, "Hey, is that the Hard Stance seven-inch?" And I was like, oh, "Wow, yeah." You know, Hard Stance is the hardcore band that Zach Efron was in before Rage Against the Machine. So you know, I was like, you know, storing them there. I was like, "Yeah." How do you know? And he's like, "Man, I'm in a hardcore." I was like, "What?" And he's like, "Well, I used to be." It's so funny. Hardcore back then, you had all these, you know, boys out there trying to look so hard, and then they put all the records on the little, little ditty, like, colored vinyl. (laughs) And and that was so hilarious. And, like, he went on to, like, he moved to China, and he was doing something with Alibaba. I don't think he still is, but he, you know, his trajectory is, like, really interesting. But, um, you know, anyone who was in the hardcore was, like... You know, really trying to distill and find something in life, you know, not satisfied with anything on the surface level, I feel.
0: It's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, that you became a financial journalist. I grew up and became a venture capitalist, and I did live in Asia for quite a few years. And I I know we reconnected on social media a few years ago, and I'd have been following each other through that. But I will tell you that my sort of interest in heartbreak, because music became such a big thing for me, and I do remember, and I've mentioned this before, you know, my first job out of business school was to manage Metallica, and it was a job <laughs> that I went after. And at that time, Q Prime that managed Metallica was also managing, and Courtney, love for uh, celebrity skin came out under them.
2: Madonna's wow.
0: best-selling album ever, Ray of Light, came out under Q Prime. But their yeah. big claim to fame is they had Metallica, ACDC, and Def Leppard. And those were sort of their three main bands that, and they were, you know, 2 prime theater, sort of known as the powerhouses as far as music management goes. Um, and then they kind of had all of these Fastic like, Pumpkins, and Hole, and Madonna, and Bruce Kornstein, the range. They had all of these great bands at the time that I ended up sort of going after them that, uh, you know, I decided, I want to... Manage band, you know, I love music, but didn't clearly go that route. But my background will come up every so often. I'll be in a record store and I'll ask for something or I'll say something. The guy behind the camera looked at me funny because clearly I probably don't look like listen to that kind of music. And then this whole conversation will open up and they're like, what? Like, I literally was in a record store. Up the street, I'm in Cambridge Mass now, where the guy was like, oh, he's like, you're a royalty. I'm like, no, I really am not. I was like 12 <laughs> years old, like a little girl sweating in the back of the club, like trying to get back home before 10 p.m. And my dad found out that I was out of the house, really. <laughs> but the fact that you are able to be in those venues, but that's exactly how Michael and I actually, I had no idea. I was actually talking to Michael because we were talking about sort of innovation and technology and both in the government. And then all of a sudden, I don't remember how it came up, Michael. All of a sudden, Michael said something about running a label or I said something about growing up in D.C. I don't remember how it came up. Do you? Uh,
3: No, I think it was just we were just talking about um, sort of background and I think just being from the DMV region. And, you know, and and I think that uh, I think that's how it came up. And then, you know, a lot of the I guess the ethos of that of that region we were talking about, I think we were talking about the ethos of the region I think that's what it was and and then um you know I th- think you mentioned something about music in DC and then I talked to you I, we just sort of organically connected through it and then I mentioned that I started a label um at one point um and so uh, yeah so I, a lot of a lot of the whole themes um from the DC scene Hardcore scene were in my label. So I, I ran a label called the Beachfields, B-E-E-C-H, not B-E-A-C-H. But um, but it was it was a community-based label and it was really influenced by Simple Machines, which was influenced by Discord, which was influenced by the really early um, hardcore scene in D.C. And, you know, and, and I toured in a band called The Selden Plan at the time. And then, and, and so I, you know, I was really my contemporaries were like the Dismemberment Plan and Jawbox and that sort of thing. Q and not you. Um, we were doing, I think. I think Carson mentioned the idea of community. That's exactly what we were doing, but we were doing it in Baltimore. And so, um, you know, we were we were doing we doing exactly that, building on that ethos. And and you know, my first when I first started out. The other thing you mentioned that I think is really interesting is the, the access. That's a big deal because I saw my first show at the DC space. I saw um, Shudder to Think because I was a big Shudder to Think fan. Yeah. And so they were, I
0: just I, those guys were like the second, sort of the second wave. Shudder to Think. Right. I remember seeing them a right. few times. They were kind of like the second wave, but go ahead. Right. And I, it's amazing that you were at DC space. Like I'm so glad
3: well and that was my first gig ever so so and and that's what i mean by the access so you know i grew up outside of baltimore and then i moved out to this really farm town in the middle of nowhere and i was there was like 3 people that listened to decent music and there was nobody around so like playing in a band was a really hard thing to do because most of the folks that i played in bands with wanted to play AC/DC and Led Zeppelin and I was like no I want to you know I want to emulate like shudder to think and you know and and jawbox and then it was really hard and so I started out as a solo sort of a solo almost singer-songwriter punk kind of thing where I was doing everything on cassettes that were hand traded and we would go to Kinko's and make up all the artwork and do all the DIY yeah. and the I went down to DC my first show was at the DC space um and it was I thought I was gonna get run out of the town because I'm playing like this sort of punky emo stuff with all these hardcore like punk people and like they were the coolest people so accepting and I was 17 years old at the time so I kind of got sn- kind of lied and you know of course we all lied about our ages then but um <laughs> you know, like they were so accepting and so supportive. What and year was this, Michael? I played my first show in 92, 92. So, um, so that was a, that was a project called pupa's window. And I did that for a long time and it, it was, got really, um, got really hot because of all the cassette trading that went back and forth. And the people that really helped me do that, were the people from the Baltimore and DC hardcore scenes because they had a built-in network there was a built-in community and I thought man I'm gonna get run out of town and they were so accept- so accepting and then later on when I you know when I was really doing it seriously and touring and all of that and I wanted to start my own label and I thought back on all of those times that was really the model I came up with and then you know and then we built a, a really good community in Baltimore that was somewhat related um, different somewhat different genre because we went more in the pop um, indie alternative direction but it's the same idea and so that's how that's how wide the influence was um, you know across our whole region um, because of, of of you know these 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 different um you know th- these different movements would have ripple effects across the region and so so that 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 and you know and I've toured, and, and been in you know pretty serious bands throughout each one of these phases. And so, you know, early, the mid nineties through the two thousands. And then when I was touring in the Selden plan, that's really when they, when Napster hit and like totally collapsed the music industry, um, and came up with my contemporaries that were, like I said, from, from the discord bands. And then later on, when I did my own thing in Underlined passages, um, older, sort of, you know, sort of mid, mid two thousands all the way up to now, it's a completely different thing. And so I've lived through each one of these musical eras. And I think the funny thing that I see now, and I think Carson said it really well, is that now that people are really scattered across the internet and everybody's a content creator, people are searching, which is why I think all these documentaries are coming out by the way. Um, people are searching for some sense of community and so they're looking around and they're seeing examples like inner ear studios they're seeing examples like the dc hardcore scene they're seeing like midwest emo all of these things are cropping back up because people are really starved for that community and then post pandemic even more so um i think so many places have been devastated music genre uh, venues have been devastated. Scenes have been devastated by the pandemic that people are really looking for examples to kind of rebuild. And so I I think that's, that's one of the things I've noticed across each one of those eras of my own musical career. Um, But I have to tell you, it was a unique time. And I, I just, I almost tears come to my eyes because I was like a 17 year old kid from a farm community With a handmade cassette that I made, draw, you know, drew by hand with my crappy punk emo songs. And people just were with open arms. I could go down there and go into the city, and people are like, yeah, man, come on in, you know, like we're just doing our thing. And um, it was just an amazing experience. And I haven't had anything since then like that. So. Um, yeah so I think that's nope. I think everything you're saying is, is right
0: it, it was so funny that you brought up the tapes because that was literally how we listen to music and actually if you go to my Instagram because I you know I'm at my mom's house and I found my like my I will not throw away any of my music my mom was like what is this crap and I have like you know people laugh at me I have like all my CDs I'll never get rid of them I'm like a ton of records of course and I don't know if anybody remembers that discord would scratch like um little sayings into the um right I forget what the part of the record is called right near the hole. But it would be like down under, under, down. Like they would write little sayings on the if you open up your I don't know if they still have those now, but if I open up like an old screen record or a Kingface record or, you know, rights of Spring, they scratch little messages in. But um I have like this like these trays, these pallets of tapes I've taken a picture and put them on my Instagram because I would literally make tons of mixtapes. And I was really into ACDC was for those about to rock was actually the first cassette tape I ever bought. I think I was probably eight. I want to say eight years old. Somebody gave it to me for my birthday. I I asked for it. I should be more honest um, for somebody to buy it for me for my birthday because my parents never gave me allowance, but that's a whole other story. So, um, I have, um, I have a picture of all of these tapes and I would literally hand make, mix it. I put some like Guns N' Roses on there. I would put some Dag Nasty, you know, and just mix it up with like, you know, some DC hardcore, some metal, a little bit of Metallica. I did love Led Zeppelin. I did mention sort of what my interest, I developed an interest in metal because there was a skater scene that was big. I think of Bethesda Chevy Chase and actually Whitman. There were a lot of boys that went to those schools who were also became part of the DC uh, scene. And there were bands like Swizz that uh, a bunch of our friends uh, put together. Um, But those guys would skate. They were really big into skating. And so I got into Metallica through them. And then when I went away to college, my roommate happened to be a deadhead. And I told her that she was not going to play the Grateful Dead in our room. When I saw who she was. She told me that I wasn't going to play all of those weird, you know, the the records with that were all black because uh, I had them up on my wall, Scream and Marginal Man. And so we had to come to a compromise and it was Zeppelin and The Doors. And so I got really into that stuff. But um, I would make mixtapes with all that stuff. But um, I also... Well, uh, go ahead.
3: I was going to say, you know, that, that was such a big deal to my coming up in music as well, because as a musician, you know, and, and, and I have to say, I, that's how I got my early success. I actually charted on college. If you remember, CMJ was like a, um, you know, the College Music Journal was like a, like basically the billboard of college radio. I actually charted on a bunch of radio stations and started charting with like big label artists simply because of the cassette trading um that's how i got and this is you know pre pre real internet and what was funny is you know there was so much effort that we all put in i had you know of course i had um a group of friends around me as well that were really supportive and we put so much effort into sort of designing the cassettes and i don't mean when i mean effort i don't mean like we were meticulous about like you know does this color go here or does this shape go here it wasn't like that at all it was you know how do we, um, you know, how do we go for five dollars to you? I, I remember this is a great story. Kinkos, you know, you could make copies, and you know now they're like ten cents, but black and white copies back in like the early nineties were like a dollar a sheet, um, and color copies, forget it. And they only had two colors at the time too. By the way, it was red and, and, and blue. That was the only copiers that you could use that had color, and they were like three dollars a sheet. So we would come up with all kinds of and i mean there were four or five people involved in this process just with the cassette creation we would come up with all kinds of weird ways of trying to figure out how do we um you know make the color scheme red and blue and black and put enough information in there and 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 have enough that we could sort of print on both sides or cut copy on both sides of the paper to fold the, the sheets in the right way, to put them in the cassettes that we got so that when things got traded, you would get all the information that you needed, right? Because you didn't have an email address. So you had to either call somebody or you had to have a, a snail mail address. And I, and I remember how much time and effort. But that in itself was a whole scene of people because then um, I know I told the story um, on our innovation podcast about meeting um, uh, Rivers Cuomo and and asking him meeting him at a DC show and asking him like how he got signed and him telling me about you know how he put macaroni took macaroni and spray painted it and glued it to the front of his CD cases so that the A and R people would like say hey this is something different and weird than everything else we get let's check it out of course I I said I ran out and bought macaroni and started like doing that when I heard that story but the other thing that, that at the time that I, you know, that I remember is that, you know, people would really sort of put these little mementos like you said, scrolling, scratching into the inside rim of the, of the vinyl, but people would also put little mementos into the CD, uh, into the um, cassette cases themselves. So uh, um, I remember the way that I, that my cassettes got traded and what people really, I don't know that they even like the music, but I think they were trading them for was that we would go and we would find all the different spray paints that we could and put glitter on the cassettes and like really make it a unique piece of art. So every single cassette was handmade. It was its was own thing. And that in itself turned into a big deal. And of course I know this was a little bit past, you know, your sort of phase of, of the hardcore scene, but then you accompany that, that with a really cool and innovative zine, Right. And that was another part of it, too. And now you have these really handmade pieces of art that, you know, the the music's a part of it, too. But almost in themselves became a thing that people rallied around, you know, and it's there was obviously the anti-corporate part of it. There was the DIY part of it, the activist part. And that was really important. But part of that DIY activism was we're going to make something that's handmade that maybe only 50 or 100 are made. And that way we... You know, screw you, corporate, <laughs> you know, like screw you, capitalism, screw you, corporate. And, and that, in some sense, is what I think people are trying to get back to now, because you throw a Spotify, I know as a musician, I can get thousands and thousands and thousands of streams of my music, and I do, from people I will have never met, never seen, I don't know where they're at, they don't know me. And like you miss that sort of like community. So there were so many ways that you could build community from the shows themselves to the creation of the, the music, the recording of the music, being in the band, being in the room during the band practices, or even making the actual physical thing themselves. There was just all these opportunities for people to be social. Um, and what I find ironic is that we've got all these social media now, which means that you can be social with anybody, but people are craving this, this part of the scene that you're talking about. Um, And I think that's really interesting how we're coming full circle in that way.
0: You know, it's funny, Ed, who was on a little while ago, who literally, his room was right across the hallway from mine at Columbia. And he literally had a poster on it that said, Ed the Bear, and he was always going to shows. So me and him connected on seeing to go see uh, like different hardcore groups and stuff down at CB's and different places in New York. Um, you know, he clearly, he wasn't in that, it, I didn't feel the sense of community in the shows that we would go to see in New York, but certainly I remember that the boys that I would date up at college, because there was a huge DC contingent that went up to school to Columbia and Barnard in those days, um, would always say to me, not just them, not just the boys that I dated, but, um, other people would be like, God, you guys from DC are such snobs." you're like so awful. And like people would always make comment that, God, oh, you're from DC. And they would roll their eyes because there was just this feeling for sure. I'm sure people weren't, maybe they were like consciously putting that out, but we always felt like a little bit like, you know, like we've got good stuff and we know it. Um, But it's really interesting. The only other sense of that we say community, community, and I don't really know exactly what that means other than you kind of have a, in this particular sense for me, it was a a shared kind of roots um, and a feeling. It's a feeling. Um, I remember, um, you know, the only other kind of scene I can think of that reminds me of that, we touched on it. um, I think it was with you, Michael, is the generator, the desert, the palm desert, generator thing. And I discovered this because I do watch a lot of documentaries. And so I can't remember. I'm sure, I, you know, when he was like, when Ed mentioned something about hardcore documentaries, but I was watching a documentary on the Palm Desert scene. Um, out of that scene um, kind of came, I, I mean, I know these two bands, Caius and Queens of the Stone Age, um, but I'm sure there were lots of other ones. Um, and it was literally these kids um, you know, in the desert that were taking generators out into the desert, plugging their musical instruments in and having these huge parties. And I literally watched that. And I have this it's nervousness or anxiety or whatever, because it reminds me of being back in DC of walking up to a show and all these kids out in the desert listening to music. And I look like people were drinking beer. So it might have been a little bit different from what we were doing. But That's a sense that uh, that was really the only other community that I have been aware of where there is that I felt that same thing, a sense of a group of kids getting together and making sort of their own thing. So I thought that was sort of interesting, but it certainly did kind of label you as a, um, you're certainly put into a bucket as like kind of being a little bit of a snob, at least in New York. And a lot of the people that we went to school with came from other scenes, not necessarily hardcore, but. Um, you know, and we're just like, oh my God, you people from DC, I roll, well, but go ahead. I was Michael, just going to say,
3: you know, and I think that's the, 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 I think that's the thing here is that, um, well, it, well, as a musician, I'll speak as a musician in that sense. Yes, there was a lot of snobbery, but there was so much acceptance. Like, like I said, you know. I I lied about my age. I was felt comfortable about going there because I knew there. were that was in, drugs that was alcohol. in
0: our that was in our scene. I'm talking about outside. I'm talking about when I right. go somewhere else. People are always like, "Oh yeah, And I'm only really talking about like the '90s, and late '80s, when I was like in New York, contemporaneous with what was happening in DC. People were always like, "Oh, you're from DC." I roll.
3: Oh no no no! I understand, and I, I was saying, you know, that's to the to the outsider. Yeah, absolutely the insider it was like you know an amazing place to be but i think that's you i think hit on what the important point was though i think the i thought about this a lot you know a lot Like why you know i'm an old i'm old now and i play shows with like kids half my age you know <laughs> and i feel like i'm i'm and they're you know it's fun it's cool to like connect with 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 folks that are that are half my age around music, that's all music's universal language. But I always sort of reflect Thank on like, you. what is it? Thank is, you. you know, <laughs> what 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 is it <laughs> that? Why did I like it? Like, am I having a get off my lawn moment that things were better then, or is there was there something different? You know, I'm always sort of walking away because I get a lot of comments. We, you know, we sometimes tell stories on stage because it just can't help it. Again, I feel like the old person in the room but but you know about like stuff like um about how things were and i get a lot of comments after the show like you know hey you know that was a really cool story i really wish we had that here or hey i'm i'm coming up you know i'm I'm 20 in a band and i feel like i don't know you know i play shows and i'm so disconnected from the people around me because like I only see him on Instagram once in a while, and then we get together and play a show, and then I don't see him for like three months and I talk to people about this almost like in a weird mentoring way, which is kind of weird, you know for a musician to be in that um that position um and it's also kind of weird that people look at me and go i like i they're like oh you you did pretty well for yourself I'm like what <laughs> no i did um it's weird when you get to a certain point you're like looking at looking back but I think what I'm trying to say out of that is to, to really say that what was unique and what I think was unique, and I don't think it's a get off my lawn moment, I think it was really, truly, objectively unique was the fact that we were all in a world where you had it in your community. Um, you spoke about some of the racial issues as well. So I think that's a, a piece of it. I was in the middle of freaking cornfields. You know, we came from places where we just didn't feel like we fit. And we came to a place where everybody that didn't feel like they fit fit. And I feel like that is and and, it, and with the with the way that it is now, with the way social media is now, you can find your niche um, without having to go to a physical location. And I think there's something to be said for having to physically go to a club or a place to find people that you think. Are going to kind of get you um, I think it it does enhance that emotional connection, and that 's why when you said at the beginning of the show like you were almost crying i don 't think you get that same level of emotion you may get intellectual connection with people on social media I just don 't think you get that same emotional connection that you do when you're in a room with the same people and you're looking at each other you're touching each other you're talking to each other you're smelling each other you're laughing and crying together and i think that is really what i think at the core of it why it was different why it was special and i think our region kind of fostered that because um because of of the transient nature of what dc was is inherently a transient city. So there's a lot of opportunity not to fit in there.
0: So I'm going to pull Carson into the conversation. Um, and before I do, I was just thinking about when you were talking about tears in the eyes. Um, I don't, I, you know, I was just thinking that the other, I was thinking, when else have I gotten like so teary-eyed? And this is a little bit weird. So when I got into college, I also got really into rap. So I was really into N.W.A. I shouldn't say rap. I should say N.W.A., literally sing all of those songs lyric for lyric and I'm not ashamed to say that my nickname was uh, Ice Cube so there you go but um I you know I was so into that but um I remember at the NFL halftime show this year Dr. Dre played with Eminem and Snoop Dogg came out and I think um, they started playing the chronic Um and I got I literally had to, I don't know why I got tears in my eyes because that came After uh, um, Straight Outta Compton, which is sort of like to me, one of my top five, um, always goes up that record, always goes up on a wall wherever I am. I have a huge poster of Ice Cube. Um, I can literally sing you the lyrics, but I won't because I don't want to get canceled. Um, But um, uh, people, I was on TikTok and I saw multiple TikToks of people from that era that were like kids or into that music crying, watching the halftime show. And they were like, yo, my dad getting all like emotional. I'm like your dad. Cause you know, I don't think of myself as that age. Um, but I literally was like your dad and there was literally like these gang bangers and stuff like watching and like crying. And then also just like normal people like watching and getting teary eyed when that half. Time Show came out. And so I think that sense of community also came up with other genres and things. But just I thought it was interesting when you were talking about this this community. But Carson, I want to have you come in and, you know, you're in the thick of these things right now as a musician in Nashville. First of all, what kind of music are you playing? Tell me a little bit about kind of we've talked a little bit about the influence on you of coming from D.C., but would love to hear kind of you know, a little bit more about the scene in, in, in Tennessee, I guess, in Nashville, a little bit more about what you're doing, how that connects back if in any way to hardcore and, um, you know, anything else groovy that you want to share with us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm so I was in a band here for a while. That was, uh, you know, an alternative um, alternative rock band. Because um, you're a musician yeah. now, correct? Yeah, currently, um, yeah, have been have been um, you know, it's it's not uh fully paying the bills, but it's uh it's it's the it's still the main project at all times is um is doing music. So I was I've I I played in a band here for a while called Arley that um kind of had this weird overnight success moment and we um signed to Atlantic, uh, which was a big jump right out the gate. And it kinda, uh, has mostly fallen apart since then, because I think, uh, that was not really what I had learned about how to do music the right way. And, uh, sure enough, um, you know, it's a band, so you gotta go with, you gotta work with a big group of people to decide on what you're going to do. And we, we did that and it's pretty much fallen to the wayside for me by now, but it was a great learning experience about sort of what not to do and um, what music is not about in a lot of ways. But, um, but it was really cool because we got to, we got to kind of see how these things take off and uh, learned a lot from it um, and uh, played a lot of shows. So that was cool. Um, I'm currently playing in a, in a group um, with a friend of mine here um, called Doc Henry. And that's, um, that's a lot more, of an experimental sort of area. Um, a lot of Radiohead influence and stuff. And that's, that's what, um, that's the kind of music I was playing in, in DC as well. Um, so that's sort of, um, been, that's sort of where my heart has been at musically or where my head has been at musically, I guess. Um, but, uh, heart has definitely been in the, in still in the punk, um, ethos in the punk mindset of just like doing this in a way where it where it feels right to me it feels right for the audience um and that like as stuff happens and as shows happen and as records get released that there's sort of a tangible on the ground feeling so yeah and i've been playing with them and i i I play just around there's so many musicians here and there's so many people in bands and bands come and go and change lineup so i've i fill in on um in different spots have played in different bands for brief stints and then they will split up or go a different direction. Um, I have shows coming up this month with, um, with a guy in town named Beaton, um, who's a, who's a great songwriter. So I don't know, it's a lot of different stuff, but like I said, like, there's so much different stuff happening here, um, all the time. So there's, there's a lot of different genres and really my, my, there's a, someone, a great, um, metal drummer uh greg fox who's in new york he he has a a rule of two thirds which is are two out of three which is are you is there who are you playing it with who are the people involved what is the music and is there money involved and you have to check two of the three to to take the gig (laughs) so that's that's sort of been my mentality going forward um with different stuff
0: You know, Carson, I'm just curious. So growing up in D.C. and learning about the hardcore scene, um, how did you I mean, because, you know, we used to get actually records. There was no radio that was playing this music. We had to get records and make tapes from those records. Um, And when I was allowed you know, to drive our family Volvo, uh, I would pop those tapes in. But I was always listening to either records or tapes. But you would go buy the record. Um, or you would go buy the tape. There was no downloading music. Um, as I said, it wasn't playing on the radio. Um, so how did you, and, and now, you know, you can get it anywhere, but how did you first, you know, like come upon this? Was it just something that was being talked about like in the school and community that you were in or, uh, you know, were you just sort of exploring, you know, let's look for bands from my hometown, but how did you become exposed to like, you know, Discord and sort of the whole sort of DC scene uh, as somebody that's a little bit more, um, you know, more recent out of that scene?
1: I think it was, it was just, uh, you know, started playing in in bands in middle school and some, and, you know, someone said, oh, you play guitar, you should listen to Nirvana. And so, you know, totally got into Nirvana and then uh, was reading about Nirvana on the internet or in some book i got from the library or something it was probably all on the internet though i mean so much of this is just uh just from youtube and wikipedia just sort of finding out where things come from and so you follow nirvana and you hear about the melvins and black flag and then you get into black flag and then you start listening to minor threat and then you find out minor threat's a DC band and then you learn about bad brains and then Fugazi and just, and all this stuff is out there like on the internet. And so there's, there's so much documentation, um, which is a really cool part about, I mean, Fugazi and Ian MacKay, like they, they do so much documenting and there's so many records, Mm -hmm. uh, not like music records, but just so many like literal, like records of like what happened and how it happened and where it happened. And uh, so, so much of this just comes from, the internet and and youtube just seeing old videos and seeing photos of old flyers and finding out about stuff so uh yeah it was it was all the internet like but uh and it's not like i you know had this sort of had some sort of sage figure who i knew in dc who was telling tall tales of all of it it's it's just all out there but um Learning so you have to go find is,
0: it on your own really but it's like going down one of these internet rat holes i'm sure right where one thing leads to another
1: yeah and it just it just sort of you know i just started learning more and more about all of it and you know i still find out new things i've learned a lot of new band names today you know more stuff to uh check out and uh so yeah it just it's it's thankfully there's enough record of it that that you can kind of uh be in touch with it. And I'm, I'm sure. And like, I, I mean, I'm hearing little tidbits here and there and I'm sure that the experience of being in it was, uh, different, but, um, and like, yeah, some of the politics of that time, like they were very specific because they, they had real goals and had, had real responses and all this stuff. Like at this point, you know, seeing the, the Fugazi set in, uh, in front of the white house, it, I, those, the specific politics that it's about, you know, don't really, um, resonate anymore because we we live in different times but the uh the sort of ethos of it and the and the core beliefs of it um will always resonate and um yeah they they've always stayed at the top of my head and and yeah and the the straight edge thing and the the not drinking um i can tell you that in in the current <laughs> underground scenes in dc or nashville uh there's a lot of drinking there's plenty of, of drinking and and drug use that goes around but um oh, no. but, but but uh I mean not not to an irresponsible extent but it but it's certainly the there's not really a much of a straight edge feeling floating around it doesn't, anymore it doesn't sound as idealistic no I mean it is I think emotionally it still is I think when you get down it's just has these less specific tenets um governing it I think um which i think in in some ways is is really healthy um and is good that that it's just getting down to the really core parts of it but um but but hearing reading about that stuff and hearing about the straight edge thing and and that that's why i was getting to go to all ages shows that's why i got to go to the 930 club when i was 14 was because of sort of was it was like in large part thanks to this movement of of making shows accessible in dc and that totally probably, changed my life getting And i have to, to, to just
0: ask shows. That was probably the new 930 Club, correct? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was the new one.
0: <laughs> it was not the old one. No, because I'm, I'm just like, uh, I'm trying to place everybody in, in a time, timeline. Um, and so did you ever get to Fort Reno while you were in D.C.? Because they're still doing shows. No, um, you know. I didn't
1: make it. I, I had a really cool... Um, so I, you know, I was sitting in class probably in middle school, I think, and listening I think I had my iPod with me and uh this teacher was like, "Oh, you're listening to Minor Threat." And I was like, "Yeah, I love them." Like I, I and and she was like, "You got to go to the Fort Reno shows." And I never made it to one, which was really Your teacher really... said that? Uh, yeah, our teacher and and she she was my she was only my teacher for a brief period of time and I wanted to be like, "What's the whole story?" but she she didn't seem to want to talk about it or something. What was but, her uh, name?
0: What was her name? I wonder if.
1: I'll have to check. I think. It yeah, was... that's
0: okay. That's okay. I just thought I wondered if I knew her because. Yeah, I mean, I
1: don't like... think she was from here. I think she just knew about those shows and kind of knew about this history. I don't know, but I always knew about those, and I never got to make it out to one of them, which was a bummer. And then I know they took some time off with COVID. I don't know if they've started back up, but. I totally went and, and I just haven't been in D.C. lately as much so. But I would yeah. I still would love to be there. I mean, I've driven past the park. I mean, you can see where they happen. Um, that
0: was literally the backyard of Wilson, my district high school and deal. Right. and Like um, they did. They were having shows. I never made it. Um, uh, You know, I just lived in D.C. after 30, 25 years of my 30 years of my family really living there. Moved back for work a few years ago, was there for two years. And it was in the back of my head that I've got to go see a show and I've got to get down there. And I just never did. But um, can you just imagine what it was like kind of being in high school or in junior high and like every summer, like it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever, just walking over there and, uh, you know, just being able to see a great band completely free out in the summer air, like, you know, five, six, seven, and we're going for a couple of hours. Um, And I, I should just like take a step back and say, that whole straight edge thing. I'm not saying that people didn't drink. I mean, there were parties. I certainly went to parties in high school where people were drinking. I just don't remember it being a huge kind of thing. Like you would have to, you know, go out and get drunk or have drink to have a good time. Um, I started to see that more in college. And I have to think that that was part of the influence of the groups that we were kind of moving in or that were co-centric or, you know, adjacent to the ones that we were in, just people were not into that. But I do remember being in high school and going to like parties and things where people were drinking. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think Fort Reno is still happening. I know they're raising money. Uh, Every time I kind of go to their website, uh, they're always looking for donations and stuff to keep it going. Um, But that's also kind of connected to like discord and, and all of those folks so, um, super, super, super interesting. Um, so I'm just wondering, it is like about seven forty, Um, and I think, you know, we generally do these for about an hour. So it's like about an hour and uh, 40 minutes. So, um, I was probably going to think about wrapping this up and, uh, just wondered if you guys wanted to share, uh, anything before we kind of close out, um, I do want to mention that uh, next week, uh, which is really this week now, on Tuesday, we're doing a show to honor Dolly Parton, uh, the queen of country and so much else. I think she is, God, 60-something, maybe 70, but has been... No, she's been working for six decades, so she's got to be in her 70s. But, um, you know, extraordinary. There's nothing more American than her. We're going to talk about her on Tuesday, so please... Would love to hear callers, their memories, if they're interested in Dolly, Um, you know, her look. I just love her look. Uh, I love the quote. She's like, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. Um, And she just has these amazing pithy quotes. Um, And then on Wednesday, we are doing an interview with uh, Craig Barrett, the CEO of Intel, about the state of American education. I know that is completely different. Uh, from what we're talking about now. And yet it isn't, it's actually all connected. So um, guys, if you have any like last memories, anything you want to throw out there before we, I'm going to play a song to uh, guide us out anything you want to share before we wrap.
3: Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick uh, story. So, so the biggest, um, the best and the worst memory of my entire musical career was in DC. Uh, (laughs) Um, <laughs> when I first, uh, got out of college, I was offered a record contract, um, much like what Carson describes in my first band had to go up to the, like, uh, go to this DC club to meet the owner of the label. I was so excited. I was ready to go <laughs> finally it finally made it quote unquote, go up, do all the business, um, <clears throat> get in the car. Um, I'm on my way home, and my my uh, band uh, mates decided that they were going to break the band up on the drive
2: home. <laughs> oh no! So,
3: so I'll never forget the sunset. I think I was on U Street. The sun was setting. I'll never forget the scene <laughs> when I was like in the club with this um, label owner of this label D Side, which was a which was a subsidiary of Geffen. Um, where I finally found, you know, 20, 21 years old. I finally kind of made it. Uh, the sun was setting and it was so beautiful. <laughs> I got in my car and I'm out past Chevy Chase and the whole thing collapsed within like an hour of itself. So, oh my um, God. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: little, little did you know the sun was setting on your career for a little while. <laughs>
3: Right, exactly. But you know what? But but all in all, I'm glad it worked out really well because I was able to have a, a really successful musical career and get a PhD. Which I think, had I gotten signed and, and gone with the contract and went on tour right then and there at that age, I never would have gone to grad school and maybe not until much much later. And so, um, and I still was able to be successful. But I I, I I will never forget that DC is always Northwest DC is always burned into my memory. Um, but uh, that that was a fun one. That well, sort of fun. <laughs> that I wanted to
0: share. Well, you would have just been like Dexter Holland of the Offspring who went back and got his PhD after he achieved great fame and fortune. Um and is working on uh I think it I think it was uh a cure for HIV. So there you go. Carson, I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to share before we wrap up with a song.
1: Um no oh, well I love that story that you told Michael. I that that's uh that's that's real sort of the real how it really is <laughs> that's uh the feeling of just all of a sudden you're in this weird city and you're like all this stuff is crashing around me and i'm doing this because i love it but it uh but and there's something beautiful about it and that it that it burns into your brain like that is 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 i i have many moments like that i think uh just the one thing that i that i i forgot to mention earlier but um really a cool full, full circle moment talking about all this stuff for me was was um the the diy scene here this place dark banner they they uh had uh they had to close down their their second location because it was in sort of a sketchy neighborhood and they they finally got this uh real space on with like a storefront and um i think one of the first shows that i saw when they had sort of graduated to this to this next level and really being accessible to people now um was uh the mesthetics which is uh the rhythm section uh, of Fugazi playing with um, Anthony Pirog, who's one of my favorite guitarists in the world, who's another DC um, local, and they went on tour and did. Uh, they they released a couple records. I I don't know if they're still going to keep doing it, but um, but they released a couple records, and that that sound of this, this experimental jazz guitarist on top of a Fugazi rhythm section was was just so exciting to me. And then we got to see them play and it was the most people I'd ever seen packed into that venue um, before. And it, it felt like sort of a full circle moment. So that was, that was one of the most memorable shows really ever, but th- certainly that I'd seen in Nashville was really cool.
0: Wow. And, and these things I'm sure are memories that like stay with you like your entire life. Um, Because music is just it's such a it's not just kind of the memory, but there's also um, the um, there's like a psychic component to it. There's an emotional component. It's like also just something physiological and biological. I'm sure uh, Michael can speak to that as a neuroscientist that these things just like, you know, live in you. So I will leave off with one story I was just thinking I'd shared this with Michael I think on a different show that we had done but I just think it's sort of funny um so I um, grew up and became friends with ironically for all of my dislike of the Grateful Dead I keep seeming to date men that enjoy the Grateful Dead and so um, I have been to a show many 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 years after uh, Jerry Garcia died maybe it was a form of the dead I don't know but I became friends with John Perry Barlow, who um, was the lyricist for The Dead. Very, very interesting guy. And we would hang out uh, at whatever part of the country we both were in at the same time. And uh, remember, um, at at one point, um, we were hanging out uh, here in Cambridge, Mass., where I am now. And he invited me to a Rat Dog show, which is uh, Bob Weir's band. Uh, and Bob Weir uh, was a songwriter uh, and is a songwriter and a musician, a founding member of the Grateful Dead, as probably all of you know. Uh, and JP was completely aware that I could not stand the Grateful Dead. I used to trash them every minute I could. <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, I'm from the DC hardcore scene, and you know, my shtick. So, um, he always thought that was really funny. And, uh, he said, Hey, I know you're not going to be into this, but whatever, it's free. You'll be my date. And I was like, all right, fine. So we actually uh, went to the show. Uh, it was very interesting. I enjoyed uh, listening to the band and then he took me backstage to meet Bob Weir, which is of course thrilling, uh, whether you, you know, enjoy the genre of music or not. Um, you know, uh, an icon and an accomplished musician, and uh, it sounded very nice. So I went over to shake his hand and say thank you, and I don't know if John was drunk or what his problem was, but he literally jumped out in front of me and said to him, this is my friend Sariu, and she hates your music. She's like out of the DC hardcore scene, and dude, she cannot stand you. This was probably like the worst hour and a half of her life. Baha. You know, they're old friends, obviously. I was so embarrassed I wanted to die because clearly I'm an adult uh, I, we are polite and uh, I didn't hate his music but i was i was literally completely embarrassed and thankfully uh he was i don't you know he put his hand i sort of looked a little shocked but he put his hand out and I said you sounded lovely tonight so thank you um so much and he handed me a couple of free cds <laughs> maybe in a uh effort to try to make me a convert but Um, that was something that, uh, will live in my memory and maybe that is kind of the way it's supposed to be. So there you go. I want to thank everybody for joining us this evening. This was phenomenal. Um, so excited, such great energy in the room and, uh, want to wish everybody a happy 4th of July tomorrow. And, uh, before we say goodbye, I want to play us out with a little bit of, dag-nasty, can I say?